0: this is section forty six of mark twain the complete interviews this librivox recording is in the public domain interview forty six mark twain chatty he tells of his former life as a reporter st louis post dispatch may nineteenth eighteen eighty nine page twenty washington d c may seventeenth I met Mark Twain the other day, wandering around the Capitol and looking at pictures fifty years old, as if they were new, and inspecting with the interest of a rustic stranger the vivid bronze doors, whose Columbian glories had bleared his eyeballs more than two decades ago. He strayed into the press-gallery, threw back his gray overcoat, adjusted his gold spectacles on his nose, and looked around a good deal changed he said glancing at the life-size photographs of whitlaw reed and younger editors which now decorate the walls and it seems a hundred years ago i asked when he was here i had a seat in the press gallery he meditated let's see in uh, eighteen sixty seven and now i suppose all the veterans are gone all the newspaper fellows who were here when i was reed and horace white and ramsdell and adams and townsend the ones you name happen to all be gone i admitted some to the control of newspapers and some to where dr potter says there are no newspapers but some of the real veterans are still here on those pegs in the corner some of the ancients still hang up their coats general boynton and Byington and urea painter and judge noah the king of the jews and dean of the corps most of the old fellows are dead whiteley of the herald crowns of the times adams of the world henry of the tribune go of the associated press jim young is executive clerk of the senate john russell young is a journalist at large ed steadman has grown to be a banker poet and henry villard well you know all about him and his fortunes yes some of these men i never knew in washington a few of them were here before my time in fact i was rather new and shy and i did not mingle in the festivities of newspaper row probably most of the men you mention were perfectly unconscious to my existence the morning call and the enterprise did not make much of a commotion in the united states i roomed in a house which also sheltered george alfred townsend ramsdell george adams and riley of the san francisco alta i represented the virginia nevada enterprise also i was private secretary to senator Stewart, but a capable man did the work a little later that winter william swinton and i housed together swinton invented the idea at least it was new to me of manifolding correspondence i mean of sending duplicates of a letter to various widely separated newspapers we projected an extensive business but for some reason or other we took it out in dreaming never really tried it here mark walked into the gallery and looked down at the vacant senatorial seats i was here last he went on in eighteen sixty eight i had been on that lark to the mediterranean and had written a few letters to the san francisco alta that had been copied past all calculation and to my utter astonishment a publisher wanted a book i came back here to write it why i was offered an office in that ancient time by the california senators minister to China. Think of that. It wasn't a time when they hunted around for competent people. No, only one qualification was required. You must please Andy Johnson and the Senate. Nearly anybody could please one of them, but to please both, well, it took an angel to do that. However, I declined to try for the prize— I hadn't anything against the Chinese, and, besides, we couldn't spare any angels then. "'A pretty good place to write,' I remarked, as we took seats. "'Some things,' he said, "'but an awfully bad place for a newspaper man to write a book,' as the publisher demanded. I tried it hard, but my chum was a storyteller, and both he and the stove—' smoked incessantly, and as we were located handy for the boys to run in, the room was always full of the boys who leaned back in my chairs, put their feet complacent on my manuscript, and smoked till I could not breathe. Is that the way you wrote Innocence Abroad? I asked. No, that is the way I didn't write it my publisher prodded me for copy which i couldn't produce till at last i arose and kicked washington behind me and ran off to san francisco there i got elbow-room and quiet it was apparently a wise move i concurred but you could write here now and this is exactly the place for a man like you more intellectual society is attainable here than in any other city in the world "'The only big mistake of your successful life, Clemens—for only his intimate friends address him as Mark—is not coming to Washington to live. Why, all over the United States people of leisure and culture are—' "'Yes, I know, I know,' broke in Clemens. "'But don't tantalize me. Do you take a fiendish enjoyment in making me suffer? I know perfectly well—' what i am about and i appreciate what i am losing washington is no doubt the boss town in the country for a man to live in who wants to get all the pleasure he can in a given number of months but i wasn't built that way i don't want the earth at one gulp all of us are always losing some pleasure that we might have if we could be everywhere at once i lose washington for instance for the privilege of saving my life my doctor told me that if i wanted my three score and ten i must go to bed early keep out of social excitements and behave myself you can't do that in washington nobody does A look at john hay just fading away i have no doubt amid these scenes of mad revelry my wife you know is practically an invalid too so that neither of us could keep up with the procession no the best place for us is quiet and beautiful hartford though there is a good deal of the society of washington that i should delight in i suppose you have been "'Pirated a good deal,' I said to Mr. Clemens. "'I do not mean by illegal publication of your works, but by private individuals claiming to write your writings.' "'Oh, yes,' he said. "'Considerably. Some scores of cases, I suppose. One ambitious individual in the West still claims to have written The Jumping Frog of Calaveras County.' and another is sure that he produced that classic work known as jim wolf and the cats i suppose either would face me down with it and their conduct has led me to conjecture that a man may possibly claim a piece of property so long and persistently that he at last comes honestly to believe it is his own you know that poor fellow in new jersey so weak-minded as to declare that he wrote beautiful snow and going to his coffin with tearful protests and you know about colonel joyce and ella wheeler and laugh and the world laughs with you but i haven't been bothered that way so much as i have been by personators in a good many places Men have appeared, represented, that they were Mark Twain, and have corroborated the claim by borrowing money and immediately disappearing. Such personators do not always borrow money. Sometimes they seem to be actuated by a sort of idiotic vanity. Why, a fellow stopped at a hotel in an English city, registered as Mark Twain, struck up an acquaintance with the landlord and guests, recited for them, and was about to accept a public dinner of welcome to the city when some mere accident exposed him. Yet I myself had stopped for weeks at that same inn, and was well known to the landlord and citizens. His effrontery was amazing. Did he resemble you? Why, do not know i hope and believe that he did not parties whom i have since been inclined to regard as my enemies had the indecency to say that he did the same thing happened in boston and several other cities it was not pleasant to have bills coming in for money lent me in albany charleston mexico Honolulu and other places, and my calm explanation that I was not there bringing sarcastic letters in reply with, oh, of course not, I didn't see you with my own eyes, did I, etc., and I resolved that I would follow up the next swindle I heard of. I had not long to wait. A dispatch came from Des Moines, Iowa. Is Mark Twain at home? Yes, I am here, and have not been away, I answered. Man personated you, got two hundred and fifty dollars from audience. Shall I catch him? came back, bearing the signature of a lawyer. Yes, I telegraphed in reply, have sent you check for expenses. He was a good while catching him, some weeks, perhaps months." and then he made me an elaborate report, giving the root of his labyrinthine and serpentine chase of the swindler, the money he had expended, and the information that he did not entirely and completely catch him, though he got near him several times. I was out some hundreds of dollars. I was disgusted, and when I got another dispatch from New Orleans, I think it was, man swindled audience with pretended lecture here last night claiming to be you. What shall I do? I telegraphed back uh, unanimously. Let him go. Let him go. I'd give one hundred dollars, though, to see one of these doppelgangers who personate me before an audience just to see what they look like. Mark Twain comes down every winter to work for the passage of an international copyright law in conjunction with Edward Eggleston, Gilder, and other authors. Senator Regan of Texas, a friend of Mark's, but an opponent of his pet measure, greeted him cordially last winter with, How are you, Mark? How are you? Right glad to see you. Glad to see you. Hope to see you here every session as long as you live." one of mark twain's favorite amusements here they say is turning himself into an amateur guide and explaining to his friends the various objects of interest in the capital he is particularly facetious over the pictures in the rotunda and the stone people in statuary hall arriving opposite the marble statue of fulton seated and intently examining the model of a steamboat in his hands he indulges in a wide sweeping gesture and exclaims this ladies and gentlemen is pennsylvania's favorite son robert fulton observe his easy and unconventional attitude notice his serene and contented expression caught by the artist at the moment when he made up his mind to steal john fitch's steamboat the humorist dresses a great deal more carefully than formerly this is made necessary by his increasing amplitude, by his vast shock of gray hair, by his boisterous and ungovernable mustache, and by his turbulent eyebrows that cover his gray eyes like a dissolute thatch. And when he talks, he talks slowly, and extracts each of his vowels with a corkscrew twist that would make even the announcement of a funeral sound like a joke. End of interview 46 Read by John Greenman